Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, well, let's go to Psalm 89 together. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 89. It's a big one, 52 verses. Don't worry, we're not going to do them all tonight. Um, and because of the length of it, we'll divide it up into two Wednesday evenings. Tonight, we are going to focus on verses 1 to 37. Really just focusing in on verses 1 to 18, we will read 1 to 37. If you look at the the superscript on Psalm 89, that little section before verse 1, actually that that is verse 1 in a Hebrew Bible, these superscripts. Um, It says it's a maskil, that means it's a teaching psalm. And um, then it says that the human author who God inspired to write every word here in Psalm 89 to us, is a fellow by the name Ethan the Ezraite. Now, what is pretty uh, interesting or cool about that is he was the brother of the human being God inspired to write Psalm 88. And when we looked at, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Heman or Heman or I think it's pronounced Heman. Um, Larry told me that at the end of the service. He says, don't you think it's pronounced Heman? And I think I said, actually, in Hebrew, it's probably Heman, but I wasn't going to say Heman every time we went through there last week. Um, about, yeah, yeah, Haman. <laughs> but um, Psalm 89 is a song about the covenant that God made with David. And it begins by praising God for who he is. And then in verses 19 to 37, really, it's, it's just a rehearsal of the Davidic covenant that you can find in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. It's just in a more poetic form here in Psalm 89. Do you remember that covenant that God made with David? David wanted to build God a temple. Really bad. I mean, it was a passion of his heart. He, he had just built a palace, and then a couple of weeks uh, later, shortly thereafter, he was like, why am I staying in this magnificent palace and the Ark of the Covenant is in a, a tent? He said, that doesn't seem right. So he wanted to build God a temple, and he consulted Nathan, and Nathan the prophet said, well, here's the thing. God, God doesn't want you to. He's going to have your son Solomon do it. Um, but instead of, of doing that, building God a temple, a permanent place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be and, and God's presence was symbolized in that among God's people and where God's people could come and worship him. Instead, God told David that he would build David a house. And he didn't mean a physical structure. What he meant was a, a dynasty, a never-ending um, the dynasty that David would have a descendant on his throne forever. And, and that promise is, of course, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And um, let's read verses 1 through 18. That's what we're going to focus in on tonight, but I'm also going to continue on to verse 37 just so we can uh, go over the Davidic covenant that's there. Verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. 
I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our king. Then thou spakest in vision to the Holy One, and saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as a moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word this evening, especially studying together the first 18 verses of this psalm, this song you've given us about uh, your covenant you made with David. Uh, Lord, in this opening section here, I pray that we would be reminded of, of why your covenant is so precious, that um, your word is what gives us life, that we can count on it, that, that it, it is the one sure thing that is rock solid in our lives, especially when so many things uh, don't seem to be that way. And Father, it's that way um, because of your character, and from your character flow this covenant and flow your conduct toward us. We thank you for that. That we know that what you say, we can count on. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in verses 1 to 18 here, God has Ethan lead us to celebrate who God is. And we're given three things that we can count on. First of all, we can count on God's covenant. In verses 1 to 4, we did verse 1 earlier tonight, right? We sung of the mercies of the Lord together. Uh, and the psalmist here commits to do this. And he commits to do it forever. Making known the, the undeniable, undiminishing mercies of God, faithfulness of God. He wants to make it known to all generations. Well, he succeeded. Centuries later, really millennia later, here we are. And um, he is making known God's mercy and God's faithfulness to us. Uh, when, whenever mercy is presented in God's word, the, the concept behind mercy is you and I not getting what we deserve. Um, now, if you have a different translation than the King James Version, it might have a different word than mercy used here in verse 1 and, and probably throughout the rest of the psalm because the Hebrew word here for mercy is that word chesed. And it encompasses mercy, but also a lot more than what we typically think of as mercy. It means the faithful covenant love that God has for his people. And it's faithful. So it's worthy to sing praise to God for. And its basis, God's mercy, God's faithfulness, this has said, its basis is God's covenant, God's promise. So we can count on God's mercy, on his chesed, on his covenant love, because whatever God says that he is, Whatever God says he will do is who he is, and it's what he will do. Has there ever been a time when that's not the case, when God said, this is who I am, and he didn't come through? Or God says, this is what I'm going to do, and he failed to do it? No. Um, listen to what God tells us in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, that he should change. Has he said and will he not do? Has he spoken? And will he not make it good? So the last few weeks I've been reading through the Old Testament. I got up to Nehemiah now. But there's a couple of verses that I came across. And they've been such a source of strength for my faith. It communicates this very same thing. That we can count on God's covenant. That we can count on his word. Joshua 23, 14. It says this. And you know. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of the good promises the Lord your God made to you has failed. Not one of them. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. It's repeated in Joshua 21, 45. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. 1 Kings 8, 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he made. Well, that's quite a track record, isn't it? That's dependability. That's covenant love. That's faithfulness. And Ethan begins a song of praise to God for his mercies and for his faithfulness, wanting to make God's covenant known to all generations. Now, verse 2, it repeats this truth, but uses words that kind of connect us with David's desire to build God's uh, house. Instead, God is going to build up, it says in verse 2, God is going to build up mercy. He's going to build up his covenant love to David and to God's people through the Davidic covenant that was fulfilled in Christ. And God is going to do so, it says there in verse 2, forever. His faithful covenant to his people is something that is so rock solid, it's described here in verse 2 as being firmly established in the very heavens. And then verses 3 and 4, uh, they give us a change in who is speaking here. Now God starts speaking. 
God's talking in verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah, pause and think about this. So he introduces us there to the Davidic covenant that is in verses 19 to 37. But what we need to take away from these initial four verses here is this. Um, that God's covenant can be counted on. God's word can be counted on. His promises are dependable. The, the promise that he made to David, you might say, well, I'm glad there's a Davidic covenant. Is there a, is there a Tom covenant or a Mr. Horace covenant? Is there a Jason? Yeah, we, we are impacted by the Davidic covenant. Um, David's physical descendants were the people that they reigned over were, and because Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant, then God's covenant extends to every single one of us who's trusted in him as Savior as well. Um, we can count on God's word. Now, the second thing that God draws our attention to uh, that we can count on is God's conduct, verses 5 to 13. When Ethan talks about the heavens here in verse 5, um, and, God, them, uh, and him praising God's wondrous works, uh, the word heavens here, it's not referring to the sun and moon and stars and outer space and the things we typically would think of. It's talking about the residence of heaven. There's a few times in God's word where this is a meaning behind the word that's translated in English as, as heavens. And then it says that that chorus, the residence of heaven, praise God, that it should, they should be joined by uh, one from earth. This is by the congregation of the saints. So together we are to join in praise to God for his wonders, for his works, for his faithfulness, because his is a conduct that we can count on. You know, that's a frequent theme as we've gone through 88 now psalms, uh, even in the moving from fear to faith psalms. We're, we're told to call to mind God's past wondrous works so that we can fuel our faith in his future faithful conduct toward us. Uh, as we sing in that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. What is that phrase? As thou hast been, now forever will be. Um, and that necessary and normal response of praise from us for God's conduct, that's affirmed in verses 6 through 8. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? Or to thy faithfulness that's round about thee. And beginning in verse 9 on through 13, we're reminded of specific, particular instances of God's faithful conduct. Practical examples of how his covenant, his promises, his word, how they're fulfilled in our lives. First of all, Ethan gives us a, a nautical example in verse 9. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Anyone here able to rule the sea? No, right? Um, it takes someone strong. It takes the one who created them. It takes the one who is sovereign uh, over all, uh, including the sea. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody here has ever been caught in a rip current, or uh, maybe you've been out fishing on a boat and found yourself in a stormy ocean swell. Maybe you've just felt the force of a hurricane right on the coast. 
But those are all minor examples of the strength of the sea and our human inability to fight its force. But God can, right? You know what it says here in verse 9? And I can't move on without directing your attention to one other place, one other person, really, because I'm always telling you to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Look for Jesus in the Psalms. Is he here in verse 9? He rules the raging of the sea. When the waves are over, rise, thou stillest thou. Does that spark your mind? Anything that Jesus did? He said, peace, be still. And the disciples' response was, what manner of man is this? <laughs> that even the wind and the waves obey him. Uh, we've come across the use of the term Rahab, like you find in verse 10 before. I think it was Psalm 87. Uh, it's a, a word used poetically to describe Egypt and its strength in the Targum. That's a commentary on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, actually refers to Pharaoh. And Ethan moves now from a nautical example in verse 9 to a political one in verse 10. What did God do to the sole superpower of that day, Egypt? In his liberation of his people from the bondage and slavery and suffering that they experienced at, at Egypt subjected them to. What did they do? Exactly what verse 10 says. He broke them in pieces. God scattered them with his strong arm. Their strong army, the, their cavalry, their um, chariots and military capability, it was no match for God's strong arm. Moses' sister Miriam, she erupts in song on the other side of the Red Sea. Exodus 15, 21, she says, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then in verses 11 to 13, Ethan communicates a message to us about God's conduct. It's this. You can count on your creator and on your sustainer. He made you. <laughs> and he made the world that you live in. He sustains you in the world you live in. He reigns over his creation. Verse 11, the heavens are thine. And the earth is also thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. Is there anything inside us or around us that's outside of God's control? Nothing. No, the heavens and the earth is his. As creator, he is de facto owner. As creator and owner, he is responsible to sustain and to reign over everything that he has created and known. Verse 12 gives us uh, what's known as a, a merism, a couple of them actually. A, a merism is... Um, like when you take two things that are on extreme opposite ends of each other and you're trying to communicate that not just those things but everything in between them are included. So he says this, the north and the south, thou hast created them. So he's talking everything in between north and south and east and west. And he says, Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. The, this mountain in the north of Israel and this one on the south end of Galilee, they're, they're yours, God. You created them, and you're sovereign over them. You created all. You're sovereign over all. You sustain all. Spurgeon said this, turn to all points of the compass, and you will find God there. The regions of snow in Mount Hermon, the gardens of sun, Mount Tabor, they are his dominion. So can you trust your creator? Yeah. And that's why we're called so often in the Psalms to meditate on God's creation, and that he is the creator. Um, I'm afraid sometimes when things come our way 
that challenge that, some difficult circumstance, and we don't feel like we're in control for sure, and we wonder whether God is. I'm afraid sometimes we become practical deists. You know what a deist is or a deism, what deism is? It means that, yes, there is a God, and he did. He created everything, but, but ever since that moment, he has just left it to itself left it to fend for itself. Kind of like a, a watchmaker who would build a clock and then it's up and going and he really does not have any role anymore. Um, no, amen. Because <laughs> um, that's not the God of the Bible. Our creator, he intervenes in our lives. He sustains our life. Your next breath comes because he intervenes. Your next heartbeat comes because he's there and he's present. And so we can count on him. We can count on his conduct. How did he intervene? Well, his greatest intervention is when the creator, Jesus Christ, came to deliver us. Verse 13 says, God, you have a mighty arm, strong as thy hand, high is your right hand. Who is at God's right hand right now? Jesus Christ. And he was there before he came to intervene here in this world at his first advent. He's there right now, and he will be until reigning from that position, until he returns for us. So throughout Scripture, um, you see this word right hand, and the, the concept is one of power. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, whenever right hand is used, that, that, that power has always been a power of mercy and grace and covenant love for his people. That is who God is for us in Jesus Christ. There's no greater evidence of the faithful conduct of our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God than who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so here Ethan's taken us to God's faithful conduct in our creation and, and his protection, our sustainment. And now, now in verse 13, our salvation. Can we count on the conduct of God's covenant love to us? All of this, his covenant, uh, his conduct, it is all trustworthy. <laughs> it's faith-worthy. We can count on it because it all flows from his character. Verses 14 to 18. Now, there's been character qualities or attributes of God that have been interspersed throughout the first 13 verses um, that were describing God's covenant conduct. But let me just give you some examples. In verse 1 and 2, God is merciful. Uh, he's faithful. Those are character qualities. Those are the attributes of our God. He's um, incomparable. Verse 6. Nothing can compare. It's kind of the idea of him being holy and completely unlike, totally unique. Verse 7, because of all that, he's worthy of our fear and our reverence, our worship. And verses 8 to 13, the emphasis what is he's strong <laughs> and he's mighty, he's omnipotent, he's sovereign. And now in verse 14, his character is described even more. It says justice and judgment. He is justice and judgment. These aren't just things he does. He does these things because this is who he is. In Hebrew, that's Sadiq and Mishpat. So literally, uh, righteousness. God is righteousness and justice. Our God is righteous, and our God is just, and he cares about righteousness and justice. He makes and keeps covenant with righteousness and justice. He conducts himself toward us with righteousness and justice, and he desires that those who are his do so as well. In fact, righteousness and justice are so much a part of who he is that they are described here in verse 14 as a habitation of his throne. 
like almost his address, or you were describing, if you were to see him on the throne, this is what you would see, righteousness and, and justice. Uh, he literally lives in them, or better yet, it's probably like they exude from him, and they surround him. He's never unrighteous. He's never unjust. And then mercy and truth in verse 14. Mercy and truth are the next two character qualities that God inspired Ethan to highlight for us. And that mercy, once again, it's that Hebrew word chesed, meaning God's faithful covenant love to his people. And, and here, it's presented as perfectly coexisting with truth. Now, those can seem like opposites. And we find Jesus here once again. Back in Psalm 85.10, there's a prophetic messianic verse that's gonna, it's describing who Jesus is going to be and for us who Jesus is. It says, mercy and truth have met together. They're no longer polar opposites. They have combined perfectly and holistically and wholly. How do we see that in Jesus? Well, let's focus on truth first. Here's the truth. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I have rebelled against the holy God. And as a result, I am worthy of death and eternal separation from him. That's truth. That's truth for every person that's ever walked the face of this earth except Christ. Worthy of death. Worthy of eternal separation from God. That is justice. That is truth. If, if God were not to come through on that, then God would be unjust. He, he would be putting truth away if he were just to forgive you and me and just, and just let it go. Our sin, our rebellion. It says God is also mercy here. How do those things combine? How can he be just in forgiving us and being merciful to us? Pastor John Piper, there's not a better explanation. It's, it's rather short, and it's the perfect description of everything in Genesis to Revelation. It says this, the wisdom of our God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath, the just, truth, wrath of God, while never compromising the righteousness of God. He made a way. He devised a way in his wisdom. Who's that way? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Tommy let us in on Sunday night. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in Jesus, mercy and truth, they're bound up together perfectly and completely. Not one is diminished. Not one is highlighted. they perfectly in Jesus Christ. And God didn't let our rebellion or its penalty go. He didn't let it slide. He poured out that penalty completely on Jesus Christ on the cross. His justice, his righteousness, his holiness, truth, truth were not, was not violated because he was gracious and merciful in his covenant love to us. Jesus, Jesus bore that for us. And we can be saved only by faith in this way that God devised, only by faith in Jesus. And finally, in verses 15 to 18, it describes those who have placed their faith in this way, <laughs> in Jesus. It says, blessed. And I, I, I wish we could really get in that word because like people sneeze and I say, bless you. Right? It means how happy or how, how incredibly the favor of God is on your life. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. 
How happy, how favored by God are the people that know the joyful sound. What's the joyful sound? There you go. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And we're blessed. We're happy. We're recipients of God's favor because now we walk in the light of God's countenance. That was not the case before we came to Christ. We were separated from him. Just like Adam and Eve, we hid. We tried our best to construct some way of salvation, sowing whatever your fig leaf or my fig leaf was up. We were separated from God. But no, now in Christ, because we've heard the joyful sound and we've responded to Jesus saves, we are now enjoying God's presence in our lives. We're being able to count on it because we have been restored to relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And it says in verse 16, in his name we rejoice all day long. Sometimes we don't, do we? And that's because other things come to diminish our joy. We're going to look at that next week. We stopped at verse 37. That was the end of the description of the Davidic covenant. If you look at verses 38 to 52, uh, Ethan is describing David going, I don't know about this covenant, God, because what I'm experiencing now, it doesn't look like it's going to come through. I don't know exactly when it was in David's life. Maybe it was um, when his own son tried to kill him, tossed him out, and he had to flee the palace. Is, is this going to really, like, your promise, is your promise going to stand, God? It doesn't seem like it now. There's so many times in David's life that could have been, and, and, and it's for us too. And so what we're called to do here is remember God's covenant, his promise that, that it's never failed. It won't start with you. I promise you that. You will not be the first person in all of history where God's going to go, yeah, I can't. And we're called to remember God's conduct. This is how he's always been. This is how he's always come through. And we're called to remember his character because that's what his covenant and his conduct, his word and his works, that's what they flow from, from his character and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And, and when we remember that, it ought to spark joy. Even if we're like Paul and sitting in a Philippian jail on death row, when we remember what he's done for us in Christ, it ought to spark joy. We're exalted, not because of our own righteousness, it says in verse 16, but in thy righteousness we're exalted because of his. Verses 17 and 18, he's our strength, his favor. It exalts our strength. We don't have any strength other than him. He, he's our horn, and he exalts it. And he's our defense, it says in verse 18. He's our king. I look forward to that time when he comes back. Revelation 19 describes Jesus at his return, the second coming. It says on his robe and on his thigh, he's got a name written. King. King of kings, Lord of lords. And that's my king. I hope it's your king. Look, we, we live in a world where at times nothing might seem stable. Sometimes we feel that there's little that we can count on. But God has graciously given us three things in these first 18 verses that we can. We can count on God's covenant. And we can count on his conduct. We can count on these because of his character. Now, we've got to respond. We've got to decide if we're going to respond by placing our faith in him. But by placing our faith in these three things that come from him. That's how we first come to Christ for salvation. That's how we continue in Christ. Is he worthy of that? Is he worthy of our faith and our trust? Well, then let's glorify him. By forsaking all, I trust him. I'll have Tommy and the praise team come up. We'll sing a couple of songs. I hope you've heard the joyful sound. 
We're going to sing that one, that Jesus saves. Let's focus in on that tonight to remember who God is for us in Jesus Christ. <laughs> 